Welcome to the Brainwave Podcast, presented by Windward Group Publishing and Media. I'm Gail Holnick, former radio show host turned novelist and travel book writer, and this is a show about creativity. Each week you'll hear interviews with people from many different creative fields, artists, designers, writers, filmmakers, chefs, architects, choreographers, composers. I'm interested in that charmed moment that leads to a work of art. Where did the idea come from? What did you do next? And what advice would you give others trying to unlock their own creative potential? Thanks for spending some time with me today. Please take a second to tap on the subscribe button on the app. And if you want the episode show notes, please go to windwardgroup.com. That's word with an O. Let's get started. Welcome to the Brainwave Podcast. This time, my guest is the co-creator of a writing method called The Imaginative Storm. Allegra Houston is the author of a memoir and a novel and other books. Her background includes many years as an editor and editorial director and as a writing teacher. And in a few moments, we'll hear the story of the beginning of her work on her memoir, which is titled Love Child. In my own news, I'm back to doing a podcast, obviously. We'll release a couple more new episodes of the Brainwave podcast this year, then take a holiday break, and then start up season three in the new year. I plan to release a new episode each Saturday, which will center on the Brainwave, the creative spark for an established artist or writer's most important, memorable, or just favorite work. On Friday, there will be a premium content or bonus episode that will deal more with the next steps, what happens after the idea, and we'll hear from creativity teachers, researchers, and coaches. After the idea will be a special program available to Buzzsprout, Apple, Spotify, and Patron subscribers each Friday, and that will all begin in the first week of January. In my own writing news, I am finishing the draft of a new murder mystery novel, Monkey Me, Monkey You, and my writing time is occasionally interrupted, or should I say enlivened, by the arrival under my desk of our new six-month-old puppy, Mr. Dickens. He's a mix, a border collie, Aussie Shepherd, black lab retriever, and some days I think he is smarter than I am. If you haven't signed up for my VIP reader and listener group, please think about that. I'll send you a bi-weekly letter which has all the information about writing projects, upcoming episodes on the Brainwave and After the Idea podcasts, discounts on books, free ebooks offered by some of my author friends, and Mr. Dickens' latest news. You can sign up for the letter at either my website, which is www.gailhulnick.com, or my publisher website, which is www.windwardgroup.com. Now, on to today's interview. Allegra Houston is the co-founder of the Imaginative Storm Writing Method and co-author of the book and course, Write What You Don't Know. And she's also written a novel called A Stolen Summer. I asked her to select the piece whose creative spark she wanted to discuss. Allegra, thank you very much for doing this today, and welcome to the Brainwave Podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Gail. I'd like to start out by asking you about the beginnings of your idea to do a memoir and to write Love Child. Where did that come from, and what made you decide that, yes, I've been thinking about this, but I'm actually going to do it? 
Well, there were a couple of things that fed into that. Um, I lost my mother when I was four in a car crash, so I didn't know her. And I had been playing around with the idea of somehow writing some kind of book in search of my mother, but I didn't really know how to do it or what to do with it or anything. So that was in the back of my mind. Then I was um, in tight financial straits and I was trying to come up with ideas for articles to write. Um, I write for, um, or at that time I wrote for a number of different magazines. And I woke up one morning and thought, you know, I'd actually really like to write an article about how lucky I feel to have had two fathers, um, not two gay fathers. But when I was I was twelve, I was told that my dad wasn't my father. I actually had a different one. It did not come at good news as good news at the time, um, and it was you know it was a major awkward uh, thing in my life for a long time. But I do oh, okay, consider myself. If I could just interject, and at that age, my yeah. goodness, that must have been shaking. Yeah, yeah, it didn't end without a mother and everything. So you know, it really, you know, as I say, did not come as good news. But I have come to see it as an incredible stroke of luck, and I had great relationships with both of my fathers. They're both dead now. Anyway, so I woke up that morning and thought, you know, I'd actually like to write about how lucky I feel to have two fathers, and I ended up writing that article for Harper's Bazaar UK. It was called Daddy's Girl, D-A-D-D-I-E-S, apostrophe. Uh, uh, really nice. Uh, Not my title. They're, they're the sub-editor's title, but I thought it was really good. Anyway, um, three people read that. Um, I sent it to my all my family and said, you know, you really should write a book. My stepmother was one of those people. And But I thought I'd really had everything. I'd said everything I had to say in 1,500 words. But I was thinking about it and thinking about it a little more. And then that thought of writing about, you know, in search of my mother kind of obviously came back into it. It's part of the same story. And I just kind of decided one day, okay, I'm I'm going to go for it. I'm going to write a memoir about, you know, growing up in this very fragmented, amoebic-shaped combo of part families um, and write a write a memoir about how they all these fragments, these unpromising fragments came together into one. And I think it's really important when you write anything, particularly a memoir, to be standing for something. For it to be important to you to actually write this because it represents what you stand for. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I stand for is family does not have to be the traditional quote unquote normal shape. Families can take all kinds of shapes. And the only thing required is to accept it and to love the people involved. And this is something that is really important to me and has been a defining factor in my life. So if I was going to write a memoir, I, you know, I realized that, yes, I can, you know, I can really nail this flag to the mast and, and stand for this and put this out into the world, because I think that an awful lot of people would be much happier if they too could, could sail under that flag. Yes. But somebody's got to tell them the flag's there. Yes. Yes. That's so, something that's in 
something that's in their own heart rather than something they've picked up from a movie or a TV show or neighbors or whoever it may be, other people's definition of family, uh, something they think should be rather than what is and who they are. Right, exactly. And I think so many people um, struggle and suffer with, you know, rigid definitions of the way things should be be, whatever those things might be, family being one, obviously, um, that just are simply not necessary and don't lead to greater happiness. And I just sort of feel like there are things that add to the happiness, the sum of happiness in the world and things that don't. And I'm on the side of things that add to the sum of happiness in the world. (laughs) Now you, uh, Olegra, you have extensive experience as an editor, as an editorial director, did you find, oh, no, here's a leading question. Did you find it difficult to be on the writer's side of the desk? Uh, or, or what was it like to make that transition from being the guiding person to being the one who's putting down the word on the blank page? Well, indeed, it. I did not find it easy. And that is actually the genesis of the book that I have written most recently, which is called Write What You Don't Know. 10 Steps to Writing with Confidence, Energy, and Flow, because for 20 years I've been teaching writing workshops with my creative collaborator, whose name is James Nave, and we have developed a method that, you know, I believe really enables anyone, and I really do genuinely mean anyone, to write with confidence, with energy, and with satisfaction, and even amazed surprise at what they write. But I'll I'll come back to that. So yes, I found it difficult. Because of my background, really, actually, as an editor, as editorial director of a major publishing house in in London, um, you know, I went to Oxford, I read English, I got a first, I read every classic novel when I was a teenager, because, you know, I didn't have a lot else going on, I sort of sat in my room reading books. Um, So I had a, a very strong idea of what good writing was. And I had for many years been helping other people to make their books better. And I was good at that. Um, You know, my critical faculty was pretty well developed. But your critical faculty doesn't help you when you're looking at a blank page, as I'm sure you know. Um, it, 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 you know, that's it's called your inner critic. And it's going, you're not good enough. This is no good enough. You can't write. You should go wash the dishes. Forget this. You know, maybe (laughs) drop waiting tables Um, and all of those other things that it says to you. So, so that was problem A. Problem B was that having been a, a, an editor in a publishing house, an acquiring editor, I was always getting submissions from agents for people who wanted to write a memoir, right? So there would be an outline and there would be a couple of sample chapters. That's the standard way you try and get an advance for a nonfiction book. So I thought, okay, I know how this works. I know how to do this. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to make an outline and I'm going to write a couple of sample chapters. I'll write the first two chapters. You know, that's obvious. So I sit down. (laughs) (laughs) start trying to make the outline. And I realize I don't actually know where the story starts because, you know, I'm going to search for my mother. I've got these two fathers. My mother is died when I was four, but I do have some memories from before she died. Her life before I was born is very interesting. So where does this start and how do I fit it all together? 
no idea. But I'm a good girl, so I carry on working on this outline. And I finally come up with a, I think I came up with a chronological outline in which I didn't even get born until like chapter three or something. <laughs> um, and every time I looked at it, it made me feel tired. It didn't make me feel energized. It made me feel tired because I didn't really buy it. I didn't know if this was right or not. It didn't, you know, but I thought I have to do it. So it was all a question of, you know, determination and trying to force it. Okay, now I need to write some sample chapters, but wait a minute. No publisher wants to read the chapters of before I was born, even though I think they're the first two. So where am I going to start? Anyway, so the whole thing was just, I realized I had no idea what I was doing, despite you know, all of my experience as an editor, you know, I had been an editor for what, 15 years or something at that point. So, okay, I'm going to just start anywhere. I'm going to start with the memories I have from before my mother died. And I had one in particular that was very strong of um, being in, we lived in London. Um, my mother was from New York, but she lived in London and she was a single mother at this point. Um, I had no idea that one was supposed to have a father at, at this point, and I didn't, um, as far as I knew. <laughs> um, anyway, so there I am in the drawing room of this house in London, and some woman rushes in and says, Allegra, your mother's new car is here. Come and see it, and rushes out again. And I go to the window, and I look down at the street, and there is the car. Okay, this is the memory that I have. So I sit there. I'm in a coffee shop. I'm trying to write up this memory. And I close my eyes and I put myself back in the drawing room of Mum's house in London. And the woman runs in and says that and rushes out again. And I go to the window and I look down. But wait a minute. I'm looking down two or three stories. I'm not in the drawing room. Mm -hmm. The window I'm looking out of is the window of my bedroom, two stories higher up. Sure. Yeah. And there's the car over to the left? No, wait a minute. It's over to the right. And is that my mother? My mother's in there or she's not in there. Anyway, so the memory starts to dissolve on me, which was extremely upsetting because I didn't have very many memories of my mother. And this was uh -huh. one of the major ones, even though she wasn't kind of really in it. Um, and I really like almost gave up then and there because I thought, how can I write a memoir if I don't remember anything? If I don't remember the most important things, how can I possibly write a memoir? And I thought, well, okay, I'm not going to give up. And I just thought, well, damn it. You know, if I can't write what I know, I'm going to write what I don't know. Mm. If I can't write what I remember, I'm going to write what I don't remember. And it was just to keep me in the chair that day, keep going. You know, I don't remember this. I don't remember that. I don't remember the other. And then later, you know, years later, as I was teaching writing workshops with my collaborator, I realized that this was an incredibly powerful prompt to ask people to think of a memory and start with the words, I don't remember. Hmm. And actually, when you do that, as I had found for myself, I had thought that what I wrote that day wouldn't end up in the finished book, but in fact, it did almost less edited than anything else. And um and one of the things people like about Love Child is that it is about the remembering as much as about the time. But anyway, so I discovered this is actually people write much more authentically, more vividly, more emotionally connected 
when they're writing what they don't remember than what they remember, because what they remember has already become a kind of video. You know, it's lost its real life. They're looking at it from the outside. It's, and um, that became the basis of this book, Write What You Don't Know. I, we, we began to, to develop a whole system based around this idea of letting your imagination take the lead rather than your rational mind, letting it make the connections that it makes, surprising yourself. And the result is always, as I said, writing that is so much more connected, emotionally powerful, authentic, vivid. And then, you know, the extra benefit, of course, is that you're not supposed to know what to write. So the blank page isn't so scary. Yes, yes. <laughs> Never have writer's block again, because, you know, you're, you're going to write what you don't know anyway. You don't have to know what you're going to write. And also going back to that idea of the critic, and mine was a very highly developed inner critic. When you're writing what you don't know and you're surprising yourself, and also I think the vital thing, which is very much a part of our method, is we set a t- I set a 10-minute timer for everything. If I'm going to r- work for two hours, I 10 minutes, 10 minutes, 10 minutes, 10 minutes, because somehow the, the 10 minutes releases me from the need to write well. Mm. So really what my goal is to surprise myself. So my inner critic at this point has learned not to say, oh, that's not good enough. You're not writing well enough. It's learned to say, well, this is just material. It's not even writing. I'm just generating material. So am I surprising myself? Am I writing what I don't know? It's and sad. when you train your inner critic to that, then it becomes a coach rather than a critic, which is far more helpful. It sounds like, a, 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 a and as you say, it's a very compelling prompt write what you don't know. And I have not taken any of your workshops uh, for the benefit of my listeners who out there are curious and wondering. So have you been there? I've not, but I'd love to. But it is counter, it is contrary to what in a lot of the workshops I have taken and the and the courses I've taken uh, in the past, that um, write what you know is far more often the advice that we're given by the teachers and professors. So the right that you, what you don't just in the very sentence itself and the very, uh, it's an invitation really, um, is, is freeing and is liberating. And I'm curious as I, as I listen to you describe the process and you have been using the example of the memoir, but you have also written novels. Is it any different? writing fiction, perhaps it's even more freeing to say, because I think with fiction, what happens to a lot of us is, okay, I've never been, you know, a New York City police detective, so I shouldn't write that. Or I've never been to Florence. The first thing I must do if I'm writing a historical novel set in Florence is go there. There's a good good reason to go. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> I, think I think I might start one. <laughs> But um, so right within the within the title of the book and within the method is that that message of, you know, go against the flow of what you may have heard before. I think there are it's not that right what you know makes no sense. You know, if you're a plumber, great. You know about plumbing. You have a chance of writing about plumbing or rocket science or, you know, being a parent or whatever it might be. But. If we only wrote what we knew, none of us could write a historical novel at all because we didn't live in Florence in the 16th century. True, true. true. Yes. So it it has some very clear and obvious limits. But I think for me, um, the reason why I am so drawn to this idea of writing what you don't know rather than what you know is that, as I've come to discover, not knowing is actually 
the fabric of life as we live it. You know, do you know what's going on in the next room? Do I know what's going on in the next room? Do I know really what's going on in your head? Or do you really know what's going on in mine? Do either of us know what's going to happen, you know, five minutes from now? No, we don't. So we all live our lives with this awareness that everything we know is actually really like lace. And there is a great amount of what we don't know mingled in with what we know. This This is the texture of life as we live it. But when we're remembering something or when we invent a fictional story, we have the story. We've invented the fictional story. We know what's going to happen. Or if it's a memoir and we're, you know, that it's that's all been in the past, we know how it turned out. But at the time, we didn't know how it was going to turn out. And the characters in the novel don't know how it's going to turn out. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what these people are going to mean to you in the rest of your life. You don't know anything of that future. So when you write from that don't know perspective, it's actually the way to take you into the present of your past or your characters, because they don't know. Mm-hmm. So if you can think, well, you know, if it's, let's say it's your memory and you do know what happened, but if you get yourself back into, well, what, what, what do I, what do I not know? You know, I don't remember what color her eyes were. I don't remember whether it was summer or winter. You know, I don't remember the color of the walls. You start to at least come back into that mental state of partial knowing and partial not knowing. And what you write from that place, in my experience working with you know hundreds of people, is that what you write from that place is that much more real. It has the tang of, of real life, of living life forward rather than in retrospect or from this sort of, you know, the godlike perspective of having devised a, a fictional story and you know, putting, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. making your characters kind of act it out. Because if you do that, then it's not a very good novel either. You know, you want to feel with your characters living their lives, not, you know, not sort of, you know, watching somebody push those characters, puppets. you know, puppets. yeah, puppets, exactly, into, you know, into a kind of puppet place. Yeah, yeah, you have collected all of your thoughts together, Allegra, into um, a method called the imaginative storm. Where did that idea come from? It's probably the the result of many, many threads, but could you summarize it for us and tell tell us exactly well, the, what does that mean, an imaginative storm? So the, the phrase uh, was devised by my collaborator, James Nave. He, you know, a, a long time ago. And what he will always say is he will put it into context by saying, from the imaginative storm to the creative form. In other words, many people, when they start to write, start writing the book or the article or the poem or the whatever it is. Um, They start too far along in the process. They don't start with the mess. But the mess is where the ideas come from. The mess is where the surprises come from. And if you if you aren't surprising yourself, then you know the, then it doesn't feel real to the reader either. This is Robert Frost said this: "No surprise in the writer, no surprise in the reader." Yeah. So you know this is this is not like wildly original to us, but nobody tells you this. Everybody tells you to write well. 
But we have realized that, you know, the enemy of writing well is trying to write well. If you want, as soon as you try, you're not in the writing. You're thinking about, is this good? Your inner critic is taking, you know, taking the wheel here and, you know, oh my God, is, am I going to sell it? Is this script going to sell? You know, will any publisher want my book? Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Is this really the right story? <laughs> not actually in what you're writing. So the imaginative storm is the state of mind in which everything's swirling around and getting, you know, there's a, a chaos, but there's, you know, there's order in chaos, as we know. Um, so what you're doing is you're dislodging the things you think you know. You're dislodging the certainties of what you're writing, how to write, all of those things. You're letting your imagination be that wind, that whirlwind that blows everything around. And then when it settles, it settles into a different arrangement than it was in before the storm mm -hmm. came through, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's the idea of the imaginative storm. And it's not that you know you you write like that and then you're done. The idea is from the imaginative storm to the creative form. So yes, you you can edit it later, you can rewrite it later. You so you can add, you know, the polish and the structure and the grammar and all that stuff later. What you can't add later is the authenticity and the surprise. So this is the technique that gets those things onto the page. And it, it just, so many people say, oh, you know, I can't write, you know, I don't know grammar. I don't know how to spell. Well, that's nothing to do with it. That's what copy editors are for. So, you know, grammarly, there's always ways to fix that. What a writer is doing is putting that authentic experience, that authentic emotion and insight into human nature onto the page. You know, writers were the psychologists before the discipline of psychology was invented. That was our job. It's, so uh, it's still our job. It's our job to, you know, give the people who read what we write some extra illumination or recognition of, you know, what these weird things called human beings are. <laughs> And it's resonating with various so things much. we do like, in that it really is resonating with me and that I've have had the experiences, perhaps a lot of people have of, of uh, doing it the backwards way you just the, 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 what I would call backwards, getting the cart before the horse and all that to bring up a cliche uh, in that you really can't, as you said, you can't inject the authenticity later. If it's flat, it's flat. And if you and you started at the wrong end. So for people who are listening, whether and you know, whether literature or art or composing music or sculpting something, almost almost anything you could think of. Okay, if I have gone at this the wrong way and my inner critic has been too active here, um, I would like to start something new and start it in the way that you're describing. Are there tips, are there suggestions you can make for people who would like to be able to return to that? Uh, point of I'm going to surprise myself. I'm going to embrace chaos rather than fear it. Well, I would say the the best way to start is to you know don't don't write the thing you really want to write. Give yourself some training. You know, um, stretch and strengthen your imaginative muscles because you're just going to find it really hard 
to start on something you've already been working on with a completely different approach. The old approach isn't going to just, you know, go to sleep. It doesn't work that way. But once you rediscover, or perhaps for the first time, as it was in my case, discover the actual fun of writing, the enjoyment of letting your imagination take the lead, the, the, you know, the, the, yes, you can write, it's throwaway writing. You only wrote it in 10 minutes. And if there isn't like one combination of, if there's one combination of words in 10 minutes, great. You knocked it out of the park. If not big deal, you wasted a whole 10 minutes, you know, there's a lot more 10 minutes. So I think that that, um, practice it's like, really is like a kind of yoga practice of just you know, experiencing the fun of letting your imagination come out to play, take the lead, lead the dance with your rational mind. You can't, the other famous bit of writing advice, get out of your rational mind. Well, we can't really do that. We're rational creatures. And, you know, I think you, you hear that advice and you try and you fail and you think it's your fault. And it's not your fault. It's just not a very helpful piece of advice. The way we phrase it is let your imagination and your rational mind dance together and let your imagination be the one that leads the dance. Just ask your rational mind to follow along. It's there. It's not going to disappear. You can't get out of it, but you can ask it to follow. So I think practicing that is really valuable. And we have, we have on, on Saturdays, we have a writing prompt of the week zoom. We've been doing it for two and a half years now. It's free. Anyone, your listeners can join. If you would like to folks uh, go to imaginativestorm.com, join our mailing list and you will get your invitation. Most Saturdays we have 30 people plus or minus people from all over the world, people, published writers, people who aren't actually planning to really write anything for publication at all, but just really love the the practice. They really enjoy uh, doing this sort of throwaway writing. We we end up, we, we spend an hour and 15 minutes, but we only write for 10 minutes in that time. And, um, and people find that it really enhances their life. I mean, we know that having a creative practice is one of the components of happiness, Mm -hmm. right? Of having a happy life. Um, So this is like, you know, one of the cheapest creative practices you can get. All you have to buy is pen and paper. That's right. (laughs) We do, we do say write by hand. That's another thing. If you go to imaginativestorm.com and sign up for our mailing list, you'll also get our list of writing tips of which write by hand is one. You can put it onto the computer later, but when you're first generating it right by hand. Um, but people find that this process, um, aside from occasionally giving them writer's cramp, um, enhances their awareness of the world around them, which also enhances their sense of gratitude and also extends their range of compassion. It's very interesting. All of these things, of course, leading to, you know, more contentment and enjoyment in your life, you know, leaving writing out of it completely. So, and I I have found the same thing for myself. I never had a regular writing practice until two and a half years ago when we started this weekly, um, this weekly event, and I wouldn't miss it for the world. And the only time I've I've missed it is if I've been on an airplane and couldn't join. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, um, so yes. So if your listeners would like to come and join us and check out the imaginative storm method, please do. We would love to have you. Oh, right. um, 
And then there's also, there's a book of called Write What You Don't Know. There's a self-paced online course where we take you through step-by-step writing what you don't know, which also includes a monthly Zoom with me and Nave. So anyway, you'll find it's all at imaginativestorm.com. Oh, thank you so much, Allegra. And thank you very much for joining us in the conversation today. Well, thank you, Gail. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Allegra Houston is the co-founder of the Imaginative Storm Writing Method and co-author of the book and course, Write What You Don't Know. She's also the daughter of John Houston and sister of Angelica Houston and is an editor who has worked with Booker Prize and Nobel Prize winning authors. And that's it for the Brainwave podcast for this time. I leave you with a quote from children's and YA author Lois Lowry. The worst part of holding the memories is not the pain, it's the loneliness of it. Memories need to be shared. Thanks for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and found it helpful. If you did, please mention it to a few friends or pass it along on social media and tag us if you do. And please tap the subscribe button on your podcast app and take a minute to leave a ranking or review. You might also like the backlist available at Windward Group Publishing and Media. And that's www.windwardgroup.com brainwave podcast. And Windward is spelled W-I-N-D-W-O-R-D. You'll also find the show notes for today's episode there too. If you'd like to connect, you can find us on Facebook at Windward Group Publishing and Media, on Twitter at Windward Publish, and on Instagram at Windward PNM. I'm Gail Hulnick. Please join us next time.